Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. All right, well, good evening, everyone, and let me thank you so much for being with us, and I apologize for the late hour. Uh, Earlier this evening, we received confirmation from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that we have two confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Georgia. These cases involve two individuals who reside in the same household, one who recently returned from Italy. Both individuals are isolated at home with other relatives to keep the illness from spreading. Today marks one year since the first COVID-19 cases were confirmed here in Georgia. Now exactly a year later at this time, here's the number. 819,730 cases have been reported here in the state. And 15,148 Georgians have died due to the virus. Coming up in a moment... WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead joins me for a look back and forward as Georgia continues to respond to the coronavirus. Plus, a conversation on the pandemic's financial toll with Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta President and CEO Raphael Bostic. All that's just ahead. But first this, voting rights advocates are voicing their concerns in a response to a bill passed by the Georgia House lawmakers yesterday. Republican lawmakers overwhelmingly approved House Bill 531, which would really overhaul the state's election system. The bill's sponsor, Representative Barry Fleming, spoke on the House floor yesterday. Ms. Speaker, House Bill 531 is designed to begin to bring back the confidence of our voters back into our election system. A main component of that effort is by enacting several revisions which will make the administration of elections easier by our local election officials. Now, the bill proposes some major changes to the state's voting system, including limiting the use of ballot drop boxes and mobile polling places, shortening the time frame to apply for absentee ballots, and requiring ID to vote by mail. Democratic opponents specifically objected to restrictions on weekend voting and the use of provisional ballots by voters who try to vote at the wrong precinct. More importantly, it takes away the ability to have uniformity in every county when an option exists. For example, if a county chooses the first Sunday, the situation will be extremely confusing for county residents with voting clothes on that Saturday on the first weekend and voting closed on that Sunday on the second weekend. An avalanche of misinformation will follow regarding when voting happens on weekends. Confusion deters voting. 
And that is the dean of the Georgia House of Representatives, longtime lawmaker Calvin Smyre. The bill now goes to the state Senate for further debate. And finally, civil rights attorney activist Vernon Jordan has died at the age of 85. That's according to a statement released by his family. Born here in Atlanta, Jordan served as the Georgia field director for the NAACP. He was mentored by another famed civil rights attorney and activist, Donald Lee Hollowell. Jordan eventually became the first lawyer to lead the Urban League and, of course, would go on to be a key advisor to former President Bill Clinton. In a statement posted on Twitter, Georgia Democrat Stacey Abrams said of Jordan, quote, he battled the demons of voter suppression and racial degradation, winning more than he lost. He brought others with him and left the map so more could find their way. Close quote. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms in a statement said he spent a lifetime fighting injustice from the marching band of David T. Howard High School to the courtroom, to the White House, to the boardroom and beyond. He made Atlanta proud to call him our own. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Do you remember where you were a year ago this time? Well, on this day last year, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp held an unusually late evening press conference to deliver some breaking news. All right, well, good evening, everyone. And let me thank you so much for being with us. And I apologize for the late hour. Uh, Earlier this evening, we received confirmation from the center's for disease control and prevention that we have two confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Georgia. These cases involve two individuals who reside in the same household, one who recently returned from Italy. Both individuals are isolated at home with other relatives to keep the illness from spreading. Now at the time, We didn't know a lot about this coronavirus, including just how contagious it was. Still, those individuals to be diagnosed were instructed to quarantine and stay at home. Georgia Department of Public Health Director Dr. Kathleen Toomey cautioned there wasn't any community spread in Georgia yet. I suspect we'll see other cases, and I hope all of them go as smoothly as this did, with uh, early recognition both by the, the patients themselves of their potential risk and the, and the very astute clinician who got on this immediately uh, took precautions within their office and called us immediately. And we were able to take action and, and facilitate things at CDC for rapid testing. And remember, by Friday, we will have the capacity to test in our own public health lab, which will allow this to turn around even faster. Uh, now, a year later, more than 800,000 coronavirus cases have been confirmed here in Georgia and more than 15,000 reported deaths. Yes, we've had so many conversations about the pandemic and how it's changed our daily lives. And as we begin a week of conversations about a year later, I can't think of anybody else that I would want to start this conversation with. He is, of course, the host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? He's also our WABE health reporter, Sam Whitehead. Sam, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. 
Hey, Rose. Well, I can't think of anyone else I would rather be talking with. So good to be with you as always. Hey, you know, Sam, when you think back to that first press conference that night held by Governor Kemp, what's what stands out to you, you know, in terms of how much has changed in the state's approach to the virus since then? Yeah, I went back and watched that press conference this morning, and it was just so striking to look back and think how much we have learned since then. You know, Dr. Kathleen Toomey said in that press conference she hoped the state would be able to uh, stand up its own testing infrastructure shortly after these first cases were discovered. Um, That was not so smooth. People might remember um, the kind of rollout of the CDC's uh, developed tests to states, which did not go well. Um, Other things that Dr. Toomey said that press conference that jumped out to me, um, she said that people without symptoms weren't thought to be infected. Um, Mm -hmm. And we certainly know now um, that that is not the case. Asymptomatic infection is actually somewhat common um, with COVID-19. And also just the visuals of that press conference. Mm -hmm. No one was wearing a mask, (laughs) which, you know, it's, it's hard now to think how far we've come with masking and especially with state officials wearing masks at press conferences. Um, You know, there is the time that it takes for them to walk up to the podium, take their mask off, answer the question and put their mask back on. uh, And that just wasn't present. So certainly, certainly so much has changed in the last year. Uh, And then on March 13th of last year, Governor Kemp issues by executive order a public health state of emergency due to the spread of COVID-19. And Sam, many might argue or say, you know what? Since that was the beginning of so many executive orders by Kemp, one might argue that was a pivotal moment for state and public health officials in realizing this was going to be widespread in Georgia. What do you think? Yeah. And yeah. And it's important to know that we're still under that state of public health emergency. The governor has extended it again and again in the last year, and it gives the executive branch broad powers um, to manage the state's response. You know, Rose, that's one of those moments that I remember happening, uh, too. I was our weekend reporter that weekend and actually filed some stories for for NPR. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was just this real indicator that this had risen to a level that state officials were taking actions like this. As a reporter, I had been covering this novel coronavirus, as we were all calling it back then, for about six to eight weeks at that point. The Mm -hmm. the CDC had been keeping an eye on it long before it came to the U.S. and long before it came to Georgia, um, or before we were aware (laughs) that it had arrived in the U.S. and Georgia. But certainly this was Uh, A pivotal moment when the governor stepped in and said, we need this kind of real unified top down state response to the pandemic. And, you know, of course, then the governor will go on and closing, you know, those K through 12 schools. But also back in March of last year, we know the CDC was still taking the lead on testing and confirming COVID-19 cases. Wow. A lot's changed because now that responsibility falls to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Um, This state agency has taken the spotlight this year, but how would you assess how they've managed to do this with all the demands that people, long lines, people wanting to get tested? How would you assess how the Department of Public Health has done this within a year? You know, I think it's important to know, Rose, that with government, you pay for what you get, right? Georgia, like a lot of states, has cut staff and funding for public health in the last decade. And we've seen a lot of the impacts of that over the course of the pandemic. Think very recently about how public health offices all over the state were really swamped with calls for vaccine appointments Mm -hmm. when doses first started arriving to the state. 
you know, the agency has received about a billion dollars in federal funds to support pandemic activities. That's a number um, that they provided to us, DPH provided to us in mid-January, but that's crisis money, right? That's mm -hmm. not money for building infrastructure. That's money for kind of putting out the fire, not thinking about how we get ready for the next one. And, you know, the agency is getting some money from state lawmakers in the amended fiscal year budget for some IT upgrades and a few new top positions. But we'll have to see if that fixes some of the problems that this agency has dealt with, things that people are very acutely aware of now that we're in a pandemic, um, and really what the agency looks like down the road. Because it's, it's one thing to funnel money towards public health in a pandemic, um, but I think what's more important is to see what happens when we're not in a pandemic to get ready for the next crisis, which mm -hmm. is, you know, lots of experts agree it's just around the corner. Yeah, and then, Sam, enter the politics of all of this. Let's talk about two instances here. First, Governor Kemp refusing to issue a mask mandate. Take our listeners back to the, all of the controversy surrounding that and why the governor didn't want to do it and still hasn't done yeah. it. Yeah, and this is, you know, I will say that there are elected officials across the country on both sides of the aisle who have done a really poor job of tangling up public health response with politics. But here in Georgia, it has taken a few notable examples. Governor Brian Kemp refusing to issue a statewide mask mandate, despite calls from local officials for him to do that. Mm -hmm. um, this came to a head really over the summer. Cities like uh, Savannah, I think they were the first one to issue a mask mandate. Athens notably did that. Um, and then you saw dozens of cities and counties across the country, across the state rather, work to implement these mandates, which are you know, backed up by science. They were at the time. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, the governor's response to the pandemic, he has been very reticent to issue kind of big, you know, top down mandates for residents to do things, despite there being some evidence for those being more effective than his approach, which is just encouraging people to do the right thing, to wear masks, to maintain physical distancing measures like that. And then, of course, the public battle with the Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms. I'm going to play a clip here from Mayor Bottoms on MSNBC, this is back in July. We need as many voices as we can have as possible sounding the alarm, encouraging people to wear masks and to take all precautions and to follow the science and the data. And it is completely unreasonable, the course that this governor has put us on. We were one of the first states to reopen. He opened up a satellite hospital at our World Congress Center, 20 plus million dollars to do that. He took it back down. He now has to open it back up. So, Sam, you talk about a public battle with Mayor Bottoms and, and Governor Brian Kemp there. Um, eventually, no one had to go to court. <laughs> All the threats of suing people. <laughs> um, what, did you, what did you make of that? Yeah. And, you know, it is important to remember that that did almost result in court hearings. We were kind of ramped up for those to happen uh, before things were resolved. You know, at the time, the kind of issue that got so much attention was Atlanta and masks, the mayor calling for a mask mandate. But really what this looked like from the governor's side of things was the city of Atlanta trying to put re stricter restrictions in place than the state had at the time. And that the governor's office felt was a bit of an overreach by a local official to really buck what the state was saying uh, the, the standards should be. You know, I, I think that 
this has always been a little puzzling to me, um, this kind of very public battle, because ultimately I think that regardless of, you know, whether it's a state elected official or a local elected official like a mayor, it redounds to everyone's benefit to have cases go down, to have mm -hmm. things improve. You know, a mask mandate is not shutting bars and restaurants. A mask mandate to me has always seemed like kind of the bare minimum that you could do uh, that could ultimately benefit a lot of people, a lot of elected officials, and, and, and really all of us when it comes to bringing the pandemic more under control. And Sam, what we saw throughout the nation was that those states that were, for lack of better words, that were run by Republicans seemed to fall in line along one trend as those that were headed by Democratic, you know, governments, they went down another um, when we talk about the politics of all of this. And if you just join us, by the way, I'm joined by WAB Health Reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands, Sam Whitehead, as we take a look back at what's happened 365 days ago since the first coronavirus cases were confirmed here in Georgia. And of course, we're going to look ahead to the future as we all continue to try to live in this pandemic. Sam, let's move now to, I guess, what many con consider the, the good news, which is now the, the vaccination rollout. It hasn't been smooth, so to speak, but now public health officials here, how would you assess how Georgia is it is administering its rollout when they have the vaccines. We know that there's been a, a backlog, but how would you assess how the state was able to roll out its vaccine administration here? Well, you know, it is an ongoing process, and I think our, their measure of success kind of depends on what metric you're looking at. So uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention gathers data on how all the states are doing. And when you look at their count of, you know, how what percentage of a state's population that state is given their first doses, um, Georgia is not doing very well. We are near the bottom of the pack when it comes to states handing out their first doses um, right at the bottom. Uh, mm -hmm actually. Uh, now, when it comes to states handing out second doses, which it's important to know up until very recently, all of the vaccines available have been these two dose regimens from Pfizer and Moderna. Georgia is not at the bottom, um, though we are near the bottom when it comes to rolling out those second doses. So, you know, Georgia isn't doing as well as other states. And, and for me, Rose, when I think about why, um, it does get back to this question of, well, what does our public health infrastructure look like in the state? What did it look like prior to the pandemic? Mm -hmm. There's certainly been a, an effort by state officials to stand up uh, kind of state assets like these mass vaccination sites that have been running now for about a week here in the state. Um, but it's it's one thing to have to build those, you know, build the plane as you're flying. Um, it's another thing to actually have the plane built uh, prior to you needing it. And of course, there was some controversy over who should be eligible in the first phase and the first groups. We now know that the governor, they have expanded that to include teachers. Uh, Sam, when you think about how far we've come in terms of trying to get every those who want to and those who are eligible to be vaccinated, does it look like, I mean, I know you said we're on the bottom. Does it look like Georgia is headed toward the, a positive trend here or we're at the bottom? We can only go up, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, Rose, it's it's depends on how you look at it, right? If, if you get into the, uh, you know, the business of comparing Georgia to other states, I think that, you know, that's good for a news story, but what does it mean for people on the ground here? You know, I, I think that Georgia, as of next week, March 8th, uh, teachers, 
pre-K through 12th grade educators in public and private schools will be eligible for vaccines. So will adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their caregivers and, and parents of children with complex medical conditions. So that's opening up more people to vaccinations. That is good news. We've also had great news over the last few days. Uh, U.S. regulators have authorized a, a vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. This is a one-dose uh, regimen, um, which Georgia expects to get some 83,000 uh, doses of this week. So, hmm. you know, we do have this third vaccine in the mix. You know, wh when it comes to how the state is done, Governor Kemp has said over the last few few months as he's gotten flack from, you know, the state prioritizing uh, the most vulnerable population, mm -hmm. seniors, people over 65 first, you know, he has said, look, this is a way for us to really move the needle on our healthcare system, on hospitals, which are potentially overwhelmed by people um, who are going to have these more severe outcomes. What I think about that is, Maybe the state's rollout could have looked a little different. Maybe the priority groups would have been a little different if the situation here wasn't as bad as it was mm. to start with. Sure. Um, if Georgia had done a better job keeping cases and hospitalizations under control, maybe we could have gotten to teachers sooner. Um, so I think it's one thing to say, hey, we need to use vaccines to fix this problem that we're having of healthcare systems being hit really hard. But I think it's another question to ask, well, what should have been done to stop that? happening in the first place. Mm. And Sam, looking ahead to this year here in Georgia, there's still a lot of questions that remain for folks like you who are covering this and other public health officials. What do you see researchers hon honing on in the next few months? You know, I, I think that it's still not clear what the trajectory of the pandemic is going to be moving forward. Uh, we have vaccines now that will help. Um, but there, I think, are very serious questions about whether or not enough people will take them to reach this kind of goal of herd immunity. Um, you know, the director of the CDC has said over the last week that despite the fact that the country is seeing declining uh, metrics, uh, newly confirmed cases are down, hospitalizations are down, that progress seems to be stalling. Um, Dr. Rochelle Walensky talked about a fourth wave <laughs> on a press call yesterday, which is kind of crazy to think about. So mm -hmm. that's, I think, the first big question is, what, what do the next six months look like? Um, it's important to not lose focus of the fact that we all still play a large role in making the situation get better. You know, we can wear masks, we can keep distant. So that, I think, is a big thing. Um, you know, th there's been a lot of talk, too, from federal uh, uh, officials about kind of long haulers. You know, a mm -hmm. year into the pandemic, we have still seen people who, you know, were affected, infected early on by the coronavirus and are still seeing health effects. And so, you know, I know Dr. Anthony Fauci, who, uh, you know, is with the National Institutes of Health, has talked recently about more research being done on kind of the long-term effects of uh, COVID-19 on people, you know, are we going to have a whole new kind of class of people who have this pre-existing condition of coronavirus infection and mm. what that's going to mean for their health and our healthcare system long term? So I think that that's another big question to look at. Well, and Sam, you've been doing such an excellent job in, in following all of this. And we hate to say it like this to, I guess, commemorate this one year. I don't want to call it an anniversary, but one year marks. You're going to be sitting down and speaking with some public health officials virtually, of course, for another conversation that's coming up this Thursday, right? Yeah, I'm going to have two very smart people with me this Thursday at <laughs> oh, 7.30. Sam, I'll be talking with uh, 
with uh, doctors uh, Carlos Del Rio uh, from Emory University. People certainly know his name from, from, from your show, um, infectious disease expert, and Dr. Lynn Paxton, who is the Fulton County Health Director. Um, we're going to be looking forward to kind of what comes next in the pandemic and back at some of the lessons learned. Um, and people interested uh, can sign up at wabe.org slash community. That's how you'll get information to check the live stream and even submit some listener questions. So um, if there are anybody, is anybody out there with some burning questions, wabe.org slash community is how you can sign up and uh, maybe we'll answer some of those questions for you. And we'll definitely tune in from that. Sam Whitehead. WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, thank you for taking the time as we look back and look forward, and we will continue to look to your reporting. Sam, as always, thank you so much. Good stuff as always. Thank you, Russ. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Last October, the World Bank projected 8 out of 10, what they call new poor, will be in middle-income countries. Why? Well, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. The World Bank estimated the pandemic would add an additional 88 million to 115 million people into extreme poverty in 2020. And that total expected to increase by as many as 150 million this year. And of course, we've been constantly reminded about the impact of the pandemic beyond just being a health crisis. Millions of people are at risk of hunger because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Even in the U.S. and Europe, more and more individuals are relying on food handouts just to get by as the coronavirus crisis hits their livelihoods. Detroit, already facing steep economic and racial inequalities, has emerged as a coronavirus hotspot. Well, poverty in the pandemic. Unfortunately, so many Oklahomans have slid below the poverty line after a pandemic-related job loss or maybe a drastic pay cut. And trying to make ends meet means big lifestyle changes. Tonight, millions of Americans are hitting a wall during the pandemic, from fear of catching the virus to juggling unemployment to real fears of hunger. How one community in New Jersey is reflected in pretty much every place across It's kind of hard when you don't live in the state of West Virginia to be able to understand what really goes on here. It's black feast or famine at this point, you know, survival of the fittest. Mm, survival of the fittest. And in many instances, just trying to survive. And due to the coronavirus, the Federal Reserve has been responding. You may say, well, how? Well, for example, creating a facility to make funds available for lenders to make loans to small businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program, and that was also through the CARES Act program. Also, promising not to raise interest rates until the economy had, quote, reached full employment and consistently maintained 2% inflation. But there's a lot more to why and how the Federal Reserve is responding to COVID-19, and specifically in areas such as housing and the intersection of housing and racism. Joining me now to talk more about this, Atlanta Federal Reserve President and CEO. He's been on this program so many times, I believe, I was his first interview when he first came to Atlanta. I'm very proud of that. Raphael Bostic, welcome back. Good to see you. Hey, Rose. It's good to be here. Who knew, huh? Some years ago, <laughs> you'd still be talking to me, huh? <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad we are. It's always a good time to be here. 
Let's begin, before we get into some of the initiatives that you are all involved in, I want to begin with just this whole narrative around this nation's post-COVID-19 economy and what that's supposed to look like. Because I've been reading and hearing, well, it depends on the strength of businesses as they're reopening. It means uh, watching the unemployment rate drop. When we talk about post a post-COVID-19 economy and what it's supposed to look like, what is it supposed to look like? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I think that there are a couple of pieces to this. So one is really the question of how are families and consumers going to uh, live their lives post-COVID? So there are lots of changes that people have done during the, the lockdown in terms of how they eat, how they interact, and all those sorts of things. And there are real questions as to whether people will continue to go out to restaurants and to museums and the like the way they have during the crisis, after the crisis. So we'll have to see on that. Then the second piece is really what business is going to do. So mm-hmm. uh, one thing that I've heard from so many business leaders as I've as we've surveyed the economy is that a lot of the stresses that they were facing have accelerated changes that they were thinking about, whether it be automation, whether mm-hmm. it be the use of telehealth, whether it be the use of curbside pickup for restaurants. Uh, and that has real implications for the way that things are going to uh, be done. And the last part on that also is, you know, right now, much of our staff is working from home. Mm-hmm. And so um, there is a real question as to how many of them are going to come back and and what we're going to do with the office space and whether there'll be the same demand for it. So there's a lot of stuff that's unknown. And uh, it's those uncertainties that we will continue to monitor closely as uh, as things progress. So. I guess my next question is in, have we or how have we then been surviving this pandemic recession? Is that a fair question to ask? Uh, it's a very fair question. You know, to me, I think there are a couple of pieces to this. So one is that we've all adapted. We're all doing things that we weren't doing pre-pandemic, uh, both in terms of families and how we interact and, all, and businesses in terms of how they do their business. Uh, a second piece is something that you alluded to in the, in the intro, uh, which is that there's been a lot of policy that's made a real big difference. You know, right at the beginning of the crisis, uh, there was a concern about uh, a foreclosure crisis, mm-hmm. a wave of evictions that was going to happen. And those things just have not happened. And I think that's been in part because of the the support that's been provided by the Congress through the CARES Act and the most recent relief package that's offered un- unemployment insurance for people so that if you're out of, out of work uh, because of the crisis, uh, you're still getting cash to allow you to pay your your um your your expenses uh the the economic impact payments those 600 and 1400 checks the 1200 checks whatever mm-hmm. the number is they've actually helped considerably uh and because we're living at home m- many of us um we're not spending so the, what we've seen through this period is families have been able to save uh, and that's also allowed them to extend the the time with which they can forbear. But there's been another demographic that has greatly suffered here when we talk about in terms of the economic impact fallout, rather, from the coronavirus. And that is women. We're talking about millions and millions of women who had to who have left had to leave the workforce, whether temporarily, but they have been impacted by this. When we talk about the overall employment rate, you know, we always look at that as a specific number. But when we peel back the layers and look at specific groups here, uh, President Bostic, what concerned you about 
particular households that are there help that are, uh, you know, uh, held by women here. Um, what concerns do you have? Because how do we get those millions and millions of women back into the workforce? Rose, you ask a great question. And I, you know, one of the things we've seen through the pandemic is that uh, the impact of the crisis has not been evenly felt uh, among across the population. So you noted one group, which is women. So there's a gender impact where uh, because of how we've historically lived as families, uh, when children have to stay at home, uh, when we have uh, extended families that now need coverage because mm-hmm. People might be comfortable with uh, medical professionals coming into the home. Um, families typically turn to women to fill that gap. And so we've seen a tremendous hit to labor force participation by women. And what that means is that um, we have a situation where the official unemployment rate doesn't really tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. And so while the official unemployment rate somewhere in the sixes, the effective unemployment rate, if you calculate Uh, and incorporate this notion of women and and the reduction of labor force is closer to 10%. So so we do have a lot of crises, a a lot of stress that is still out there, even as the overall number um, is starting to look more positive. I would also note just a couple other things. So one is the impacts are not even across races. So we know Latinos and African-Americans have been disproportionately uh, impacted negatively by the crisis Mm -hmm. uh, by sector. So businesses that require people to come together, like restaurants or museums or theaters or the arts, um, those places have, uh, those sectors have been hit harder. And then also one thing we've seen that's been quite interesting is um, that if you if you stack jobs by terms of their, their wage and skill levels, mm-hmm. uh, the impact has been felt much more heavily at the lower end of that distribution. Uh, which is unusual relative to what you see in most recessions, where the biggest hit is in that in the middle space of jobs. Hmm. If you just join us, I'm joined by Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank President and CEO Rafael Bostic. And we're not only talking about the economy post-COVID-19, but we're also about to focus on how regionally Fed Reserve Banks are exploring systemic racism in the economy, which leads me to this because you have been moderating and participating in a virtual series, uh, Racism and the Economy, which all of the district banks of the Federal Reserve System have been involved in. And I want to be, step back a little bit because how did you all, why did you all decide to, to take this approach? We had been thinking about uh, the need to talk about race and, and really acknowledge that racism and structural racism was uh, constraining the potential for a lot of people in America mm-hmm. and making our economy not grow as fast and as robustly as it might otherwise. Uh, and so with a number of colleagues, uh, we decided that putting on a, a, a webinar series that really discuss things in a plain and direct way would be uh, helpful and would allow us to start to go down the path of uh, finding solutions that really meet, make uh, opportunities truly accessible for every American and really move towards having the American economy work for all of its citizens. Uh, as well as it possibly could. And you know, we've had four of events so far. We had one just yesterday on housing, but we've also done segments on education mm-hmm. as well as employment and workforce development. And uh, each of them has been quite interesting. They're all online, so you can see them. Uh, if, you, if you Google racism in the economy, Federal mm-hmm. Reserve, it comes up. And um, I think people will be pretty surprised 
but also um, engaged because uh, the discussion is quite interesting uh, and the solutions are really creative and innovative. And in this latest one where you're all talking about housing and that intersection of housing and racism, and goodness knows I've had many conversations on this program about that, for folks that may not understand the correlation, uh, President Bostic, between housing and that and the economy and, and racism, what do you want them what do you want them to know? There is a so there are co- go ahead. Yeah, no, there are a couple things. So first, where you live, which is effectively your housing, uh, determines so many things. So it determines what kind of school you go to, the quality of that school, uh, whether you have access to jobs and networks, uh, whether you have uh, food, good food nearby, whether you have health care that's high quality, and whether you're living in a safe place. So your housing determines, in a large extent, your trajectory. So if your housing isn't working, if that that um, your engagement, if flows of capital for uh, home ownership and buying mortgages and, and that kind of stuff is not working for you, then you're going to be constrained, and then our economy is going to be constrained. So that's the first thing. Then the second piece, I think, is that there are a lot of parts to the home ownership and the rental market mm-hmm. uh, that have been shaped by racism very explicitly. That's been true over our history, uh, but it's also true today. Uh, in the session yesterday, we had lots of discussions about appraisal mm-hmm. for uh, homes that people need to have if they're going to get a mortgage. And there's been a lot of research done that shows that the exact same house, if you have uh, pictures of African Americans in that house, um, it will be uh, valued at up to 25% lower mm-hmm. than if you have pictures of uh, white Americans or if you have no pictures at all. Mm-hmm. And it's those sorts of things that really disadvantage uh, African Americans and minorities more generally uh, that make housing not work. And as I said, if housing doesn't work, then the economy is not going to work as well. So in this conversations that you're having with policy leaders, advocates and analysts, whether it's regarding housing and racism or education or some of the other topics here. I imagine you get to a point where I get to a point when I'm doing this show when we have these conversations, the solutions and the the actionable outcomes to this. What did you all come up with? So, you know, one of the, one of the goals we had in doing this series was to say, we just don't want to say there's a problem. Mm-hmm. We actually want to spend a lot of time on solutions. So uh, for each of our sessions, we have three policymakers uh, give a pitch on something that might make a difference. So yesterday we heard pitches about um, changing the appraisal process mm-hmm. to automate it in ways that remove race uh, as a, a, an input uh, because appraisers get to choose comps and sometimes if they know it's an African-American person, they'll go to an African-American neighborhood that may not be cl- and have anything to do with how people live. A second one was to... Um, eliminate all uh, single housing zoning mm-hmm. uh, because in many communities that's been used to uh, make the housing expensive and not as accessible to people with lower incomes, which, and there's a correlation between race and income. And the third, which I thought was quite interesting, was in Evanston, where they've developed a reparations fund that where they're going to focus things on housing. The city of Evanston had race-based laws that prevented African-Americans from buying certain homes and living in certain neighborhoods mm-hmm. for 50 years on the book. And they developed in Evanston a policy to say, if you can demonstrate that your family was adversely impacted by that, uh, you can get access to some funds to try to make, make peace and to give you opportunities that you couldn't get otherwise. 
that's on a local level. But I imagine a lot of this also has to be spearheaded from a federal standpoint as well. Yes. And, you know, there was so much discussion about uh, enforcement of fair housing laws and anti-discrimination laws uh, and also like setting the tone. So I think a lot of change that you can see in the appraisal industry will happen at the national level. You have organizations like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, that set standards that uh, can make a big difference. So. Uh, so I think this is an all, you know, this, this problem has um, been present at all levels of, of government and existence. And I think the solution has got to be that way as well. Let's focus in real quickly on Atlanta because the, the mayor just released a couple of reports looking at neighborhood changes and also uh, releasing a, a housing affordability report recently. When you look at a market like Atlanta, we've had this conversation before, what concerns do you have as it relates to housing affordability? Well, for me, I think one is because Atlanta continues to grow so robustly, we've got to make sure that we preserve affordable housing in communities that are in desirable places, that desirable locations, because those are where you're going to see the pressures uh, the most acute and the likelihood of displacement the greatest. Uh, the second, I think, is we've got to really think hard about making sure that the supply that's available keeps up with the the, the influx of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we need to be very purposeful about building more housing and making sure that, that housing is distributed across the entire area so that every neighborhood is accessible to the broad range of Atlantans that we have here. And then the third, I think, is we need to really think about income because the other part of affordability, you know, affordability is a ratio. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the cost of housing divided by how much you make. So we need to make sure that people are um, getting skills through education and workforce training that allows them to get uh, livable wages and good salaries so that even if the housing does get uh, more expensive, um, they're better positioned to manage that and can actively participate in the housing markets as they evolve over time. And closing the income inequality gap. Well, that's a whole another segment that we'll definitely have to have you back on for that. You and I have had that discussion, too. So, you know, as we wrap up, if if the COVID-19 outbreak, keep reading and hearing how it's amplified, you know, and highlighted all these economic inequalities that you and I have just been talking about. If that's the case, then here in 2021, when do we get to a point where we're no longer talking about these economic inequalities? President Prosty, you know, you you just had some some examples that your policymakers and analysts talked about, but it's going to take more than that. What will it take to to really, you know, close that that gap? When we talk about all these economic inequalities that exist. So, you know, I think it's going to take sustained attention and focus on this. Um, the gaps that we see today um, did not just emerge in the last year and a half or mm-hmm. two years. These are things that emerged over decades, and uh, in some instances, more than a century of policy and um, and challenge and difficulty that people have faced. So we need to make sure that uh, the energy that we see around issues around uh, equity and racial equity um, continues, and we find ways to continue to feed that energy so that we can really deal with the deep systems changes that are going to be needed to make sure that um, the biases that have embedded themselves into how people live um, are, are eliminated and we get to a, a more equal and equitable uh, society. 
Sounds good to me. Atlanta Federal Reserve President and CEO Rafael Bostic. As always, good conversation. I have to bring you back on the program. I really appreciate you taking the time. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Rose. Look forward to the next time. All right. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. as well. Check out our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And there are a lot of Closer Look, but look for the one that says Closer Look with Rose Scott, because that's the only one you really, you really need. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.